two truths today. God has promised this love in this setting in Isaiah, and it's the same love he promises to us. He fulfills it in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to reverse back to about 700 uh, B.C., uh, when these prophecies would have been given to the people of Israel. And we'll see how God's promise of love helps them to understand, helps us to understand unfaithfulness. And then uh, as we see more fully into God's character, just a little bit of a roadmap for today. First truth about God's love, verse 4, is packed with such hope. God's love wins the battle over our unfaithfulness. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth. I want to take you backward uh, to last week. I showed this graphic about Bible study. If you weren't here or this is new to you, um, our goal in studying the Bible is to determine what is the author's main point. We can't just read a verse and try to leap forward and make it apply right this moment to 2020. The Bible wasn't written in 2020. The Bible was written before Jesus, uh, hundreds of years uh, before that. And so I put the red circle there that we start with Bible times and then we move forward in our understanding. And so today we want to try to identify with where the Israelites were in their history. Shame, disgrace are words that are on the page. I'll go back uh, quickly to verse 4 so you can see that. Uh, shame is a lack. Shame is I don't, I, I don't quite have uh, something that I want. I wish something would have turned out differently. I wish I wouldn't have behaved that way. I wish I could get that thing back. And so uh, shame reminds us that we don't quite measure up. Shame always reminds me of the people uh, at Cedar Point. At some point, if you've gone to the amusement park and you're, you're hopeful and you, you're, you're growing up and you're, you want to ride the big girl ride and the big boy ride, uh, what do you have to do? You have to measure up. And so they stand there with this measuring stick. And if you, you measure up and you're kind of doing one of these to, to get, you're, you're trying. But to me, that's kind of how shame reminds me. It re reminds me that I don't quite measure up. I have done this thing or I've said this thing or I have these feelings about um, my, my failures. And I can be reminded of those that I don't quite measure up. We play these games in our mind, and I want to confront this because this is exactly uh, where we drop into this passage where it says, fear not. You're not going to be ashamed. You, don't have, you won't be disgraced. God's love wins the battle over our unfaithfulness. I want to go forward uh, past our graphic here. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6. We'll, we'll park in 5 for a minute. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So imagine being an Israelite back 700 B.C. Your trajectory as a nation and your leadership has unfortunately been downward as far as morals and faithfulness to God go. It's not been uh, up and improving and maturing and drawing closer to the Lord. Uh, actually, as time went on, they, they went further and further away from the Lord. And so that's this shame that the Israelites would have been able to identify. But here in this prophecy that God gives to Isaiah in verse 5, your maker is your husband. This, this analogy of God being a husband figure to his people 
is a powerful image in the Bible. It's not just here in the Old Testament. It's throughout the New Testament. We see these references to the church, to believers being the bride. We are the bride of Christ, who is the husband. And that's a, a picture of that's a picture of authority. It's a picture of uh, your your maker, uh, your husband. And it goes on. The Lord of Hosts is his name. Uh, you look this one up. What, what is the Lord of Hosts? The Lord of Hosts implies strength. And it's not a localized strength. At the end of verse 5, the God of the whole earth he is called, and the Lord of hosts is that way. God is the God of all of the armies of angels in heaven. His, his authority is over us, is so expansive and loving like a husband. We're going to go with that image. But it gets real narrow. There's a person, a holy one. Of Israel, a redeemer is going to come in verse 5. It's just amazing to see this power. We believe that person is Jesus. So, compared to the shame and the disgrace in verse 4, he says, Fear not, your, your maker is your husband. Here is this vivid image of Jesus who is overall and is loving and is authority and is a redeemer. Verse 6, the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. God is not casting off his people Israel because they've been unfaithful. He's not going to be a husband that would do that. He's going to be upset for a while. He's going to pull back for a while, but he, he's got love to share and to show. And so I want us to get this in our minds that when it comes to our unfaithfulness, God wins that battle. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. I want you to see and experience for a couple of moments the types of sin that would be all-encompassing from Israel's history. Okay, look here at Exodus chapter 32. This is right after uh, they have come through the Red Sea. Uh, they have seen the powerful miracle and uh, wonders of God who fulfilled his promise to bring them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, they begin to go into the land. They begin to complain. And in one of the, the worst moments in the history of Israel, right at its inception, it almost doesn't make it. Uh, they build this uh, golden calf. Uh, God says to Moses, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And, and basically changed it out and said, God, you're not the real God. This calf that we built is our God. This is the people. This is the type of unfaithfulness God is dealing with. Joshua, chapter 7. They, now they're in the promised land. They've won a battle and won a victory, but they, they still can't help themselves. All right, so Joshua uh, has cried out to the Lord. The Lord says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things, stolen and lied, and put them among their own belongings. What they weren't supposed to do, they did. They disobeyed. 1 Samuel 15, king. We finally have a king. Israel wanted a king. And, and God says, fine, you can have a king. So here is, here is Saul and the people. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They spared Agag. And 
the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. God had told them in winning the battle, destroy it all. But they didn't do that. Nehemiah, they've been exiled. This is now past the time of Isaiah. They've been exiled. They come back. God is faithful. He helps them to rebuild the wall, the city. And here is at the very end of Nehemiah 13. We see this in Ezra as part of their return from exile. They started to intermingle and intermarry with the people that were in the land, and God didn't want them doing that. These are just the types of sins that we see the Israelites committing. Let me ask you, do you think that God would have a right to bail out on his people after decades and centuries of this type of disobedience? Do you think God would be justified in saying, I'm done with these people. Maybe I should go and find somebody else who will be a little more faithful to me. If we just look at it objectively, we would say, this is a lot of sin, and those are just a handful that I picked. There are others. The trajectory from the kingdom went downward to the time of some of Isaiah's prophecy. That's the, the type of atmosphere that he is, um, he is giving these prophecies. Is, uh, and, and part of the reason the language is here. They needed to know how to square it. They needed how to figure out what's the way forward. Certainly God would have the right to bail out on his people, but his love is stronger. If the Israelites were just a bit more faithful, we might think that Jesus' birth would be, they, they would deserve it. Maybe just a little bit more. The Redeemer, the Holy One that God would send, would, maybe they would just, it would help them, but maybe they would get there before Jesus came and it would be, maybe they deserve, no, it's not what happened. There is compassion from God. And so I want you, before we move on today, I want you to consider your unfaithfulness. Maybe you haven't become a believer yet. Maybe you don't think that Jesus really can forgive you for what you've done. Maybe you're not sure he really can love you. But God, I did that back in when, and it really hurt, and I have all this shame, and I'm back to this measuring stick, and I just don't measure up, I can't. Sometimes, even when we're, Believers, and we've trusted Christ for our salvation. We walk in these paths sometimes where we listen to that voice. Satan is a great accuser. There is a real enemy that we have, and he wants to do anything in his power to prevent us from experiencing the love of God. He wants to remind us how awful we are and how much we don't deserve God's forgiveness. That's what Satan wants to do to us. I have played this game in my mind and in my life. Satan will say, don't you remember what you said back then? Don't you remember when you did all those years ago? Don't you remember all that? And it, it, it can gain traction. We have to remind ourselves 
of the power of God's love. So if you find yourself engaging in this this morning and some of these emotions from the past are stirring, I'm not trying to uh, pull off a scab. I'm trying to make this healthy so we can understand who this God is we worship, who this Jesus they would have expected based on these prophecies and who this Jesus is we experience. This is real. We have a real need for the love of God. We experience our unfaithfulness, and it can feel like it's at times going to destroy us. But it's not the way God addresses it through the message Isaiah gives. It's not the way God brought things about in the way that Jesus came to this earth. I can't wait to celebrate with you Thursday. It's not the way God unfolded his plan. It was for us to remain in our shame in our guilt, wondering if we've somehow done enough. God's love doesn't win because of us. God's love wins because God's character is better than ours. If I had a conversation with you and I said, I want you to tell me about your character. Be very difficult I've thought about this. If somebody came up to me and said, tell me about your character, I would probably at some point very soon in my answer get in my mind to a place where I'm trying to compare myself to somebody who doesn't have quite the character I think I have. <laughs> right? It's easier to talk about my character if I know that somebody out there is a little worse than I am. I'm going to feel that. I'll be a part of my answer. I can give, I can give you that. All right? Here's my character. But you know the problem with that? What do we do when we find somebody who's way better? What do we do? What do we do when we find somebody who's way better off than we are? More full of God's love. Has a far better loving character than than we do. Growing, maturing in Christ. And wow. It maybe even inspires you. What do we do? Our, our, our ability to compare to ourselves to somebody else at that point, it falls apart. Because as much as we can find somebody who maybe we don't think has a, the, as good of character as we do, if we're honest, we always find somebody better. Picture the time before Jesus comes. Picture yourself in this moment, hearing these prophecies. Picture a people in need of perfect Love. It is God's character to have perfect love. The people perfectly waiting, waiting for this loving Savior. God explaining and prophesying that's who He is and how they'll experience love in the future through this Holy One, through this Redeemer thought about this. I watched a little bit of football yesterday. I want to put this picture up here for you. Um, If you follow football at all, you know that Ohio State uh, beat Northwestern. That's not the point of my sermon today. Um, If that excites you, let it excite you for a moment. If you don't care, it's okay. Just follow where I'm going with this. All right, so Ohio State wins 22 to 10. We kind of want to know the final score. We want to know the outcome. But that's not the point of me putting this picture up here. I, I took this off of my phone because what I want you to see is this line right here. On that little graph, they call that 
win percentage. And so all these statisticians who have all kinds of time to figure out all these formulas can tell you at any point in a game based on what's going on who is expected to win the game and at what percentage. I don't know how they factor it all. I don't know how they come up with all these things. But I feel bad. Poor Northwestern got out of bed and had like no better than, if you look at the very, all the way to the left of where the red graph thing starts, like they didn't have any better than a 10% chance of winning the game. I would have stayed in bed. That's not very fair, but here's what I want to point out to you. Look at that line where it is, okay? We're in the first quarter in that line, and, and, and the score at that point is Northwestern 7, Ohio State 3. Ohio State is losing the game in the first quarter, and what is their expected win percentage at that line in the first quarter? 81.6. They're losing. And they still have an 81.6% chance of winning the game, according to all the stat heads. I find that to be incredible that somebody knows how to calculate all that. I don't care if they're right or not. It's just incredible to me that you could be losing the game and still have an 81.6% chance of winning. It's incredible. Now, I will say that somehow the circles ended up red and gray. Okay. I'm, Nah, that just sort of happened. Now, we're going to follow that for a moment. If you don't care about football, I want you to follow the concept. The expected probability, a statistical percentage that one team is going to win based on these factors. Some of the wives that are listening today are going, yeah, what's the statistical percentage my husband's going to finish this project sometime this year? <laughs> right? The teenagers here or the school children are going, hey, what's the statistical probability my parents don't drive me nuts in the next couple of weeks I'm off of school? Can I get some probability on that? And we, we, but you ever wonder the statistical probability is that God still loves you? You ever do this in your mind? You ever wonder, like, what does God really think about that thing that happened a long time ago or that thing that really bothers us? We, I was so stupid, I shouldn't have. Oh, man. Outside of a relationship with God, we got to couch this before we really get this figured out. If you don't have a relationship with God, if you've not committed to Jesus Christ and said, I trust in Jesus for my forgiveness. I trust that Jesus came to this earth and lived and died, died on a cross, paid the penalty for my sin, to forgive me and to give me hope in this life and to guarantee me, just like we heard John 3.16, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Heard that a couple times already this morning. Okay, if you're outside of that type of a relationship with God where you really believe in Jesus and you've staked your whole claim in this life on him, his love is still real, it's still present, and you can see it but you're not going to experience it in the same way with somebody has, who has committed their life fully to Jesus. The Israelites, at this point in their history, still, in a lot of ways, were relying on their own character. They are relying on their own measuring stick of trying to measure up. Maybe they felt better compared to the other nations because God had made promises to their ancestors and not to everybody else. 
that's not why they get this prophecy. We can still play these games. Oh, maybe there's a 50% chance that God really loves me even though I did that. Or maybe there's an 80% chance that he loves me enough and I've done well enough compared to somebody else that he'll let me into heaven. Maybe there's an 80% chance. And we'll, we'll fudge these figures and we'll play around with these things in our mind that don't have anything to do with whether we're forgiven or how we get into heaven. Let's look at what these verses say. Verse 8, I'll repeat that before we get into verse 9. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Which lasts longer? The anger toward us for our sin or the love of God? The love of God. It lasts longer. It's designed to last forever. There will be compassion and everlasting love. God then in verse 9 puts his own word on the line. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. There are many people I would trust when they say they're going to do something that they're going to do it. But you know what? Those promises are really only as good as their circumstances or as long as their lives. God promised after the flood oh, some 6,000 years ago, if we do the math historically, that he wouldn't flood the whole earth again. Last I checked, in history since then, there hasn't been another global flood. God is putting his own word on the line. He made a promise. He made a covenant to Noah. I'm not going to do this. And he hasn't done it. Now, some of you are saying, hey, 2020 has been a crazy year. There's still a few days left. <laughs> Hang on. You might feel that way. If we're being honest about Scripture, we can say no. No, this is God. This is his character. It doesn't work this way. Verse 10, all of the feelings of Advent, all the truth of who God is, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God's love, his strong, undefeatable, invincible love will last. It shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Let me ask you this. If you really trust Jesus today with your life, for your forgiveness, for your relationship with God, for maturing, for having the Holy Spirit in you and working and helping you become more godly, what is the percentage of chance, if you're a believer, what is the percentage of a chance that you will break your promise to obey him before you die. What's the percentage of a chance that you will do that? Even though you've committed your life and said, I want to follow Jesus with everything, I trust him. What's the chance that we will break that promise to obey him before we die? I'm here at 100%. I'm going to go with 99.9 .9 and here's why. I'm not guaranteed to live 10 seconds from now. It's possible 
that if I have a heart attack 10 seconds from now, that I don't sin in between now and then. That's like one, and I, mean, I need to add a few nines after my decimal point. Okay, a minuscule chance. We will, in all likelihood, fail God and need his forgiveness, even if we're in that relationship, and even if we're making growth and making progress. We will still need to experience the love of God in our lives. Our need for him is designed to get less and less as we mature and as we experience victory and freedom in our lives. But we still are imperfect. We are still in human flesh. So I want you to contrast it with this. Do you know if you really trust Jesus with your life for your forgiveness, for your relationship with God now and forever, what is the percentage of a chance that God will fail to forgive you if you truly and humbly ask? It's zero. All of the probability games that we play in our mind, all of the ways that we evaluate ourselves compared to somebody else, all of the times that we listen to Satan and maybe he gets a little foothold and thinks he's got a little crack or a a stronghold in there that we can't really fully be loved by Jesus, all of those things are false. The possibility that God will fail to forgive us if we humbly come and ask and say, I have earned forgiveness in no other way but my trust in what Jesus has done. By no effort of my own, I trust fully in Jesus. God, will you please forgive me? There is no scenario, zero percent chance that he will fail to forgive you. That means that there is a 100% chance if you put your life and your trust in Jesus Christ that he will forgive you and change you and work in you. That is the love of God. That is the love that these Israelites needed to see perfected. Their hope had to burn when they got to verse 5. Your maker, your husband, the Lord of hosts, his name, the strength, the army, the angels, the holy one of Israel, the God of the whole earth. There's going to be one who will come and he'll love us forever and completely and we won't have to be shamed and disgraced anymore yes i get excited i got most sometimes you get out of bed you don't want to go to work i get out of bed today i get to go to work i get to go brag on god today and how loving he is for us i was so excited to get up i've been looking forward to this part okay here how we're going to end this Woo! <laughs> plane is coming down here we go sorry about that i got a little excited hebrews 10 it's not on your screen. I just put this in last, uh, last night. I want you to hear this. It's not something that's moment to moment. Jesus, there's not a better redeemer who's going to come. The one who was foretold has come. Jesus has come and he lived and he died and he rose again and he is in heaven this moment and we're waiting for him to return to this earth as he promised. But we don't have to wait for a better redeemer. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together uh, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is drawing near. God wants us to experience it and to have full assurance of our faith. And what it does then is it starts to spill out 
once we are confident in our faith, confident that he really loves us and can love us and will love us and will forgive us, we begin to grow, we begin to build, we begin to relate to others better, and we grow in faith and in good deeds. That's the point. Imagine knowing, never knowing any of this. <laughs> Would these Advent themes this year of hope and peace and joy and love nourish our soul? Would they help us to consider who Christ is? I hope they would. If we could put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's never heard this and never had their soul nourished by these wonderful truths, then why is it that we as Christians sometimes, and I'm going to just go with statistics, I'm not pointing fingers at any individual or even our church, but statistically Christians will sit on these themes and not share them with anybody else. Why would we not do that? If, if we have this amazing love that we enjoy and it warms our hearts to hear of this kind of love of God this morning through Christ and why we celebrate his birth that he sent his son to come for us, why would we not share that? If we've been slow or lazy or unmotivated, this God is a God of great love. He'll work in us. He'll stir in us. And he'll empower us as we, as we share Power us as we communicate the good news of Jesus to others, and he'll help others to hear it and respond. We need to be excited thinking about that this Christmas. His love is promised, and not just for us to feel better, it's for us to be impacted, for us to be certain of God's love for us, that he won't take it away. May the word of God always nourish our souls as believers, but may it also inspire us to help others find the same love that we so greatly enjoy. Not a promise just for Israel. Not just for those in today's church who we follow Jesus Christ for a certain amount of time. No, it's, it's forever and it will be there and that's the way it's designed. Christ walking in faith in him, leaning on him to help us to have the great love of Jesus change us and challenge us to obedience as we walk and as we follow him. There's great power. I hope you experience it this morning. I want to invite you, if you're listening to this today, you've not made a commitment to follow Jesus, make today the day he loves you. The prophecy is true. It was true for the Israelites back then. It's fulfilled in Jesus. We can relate to God in a way that he will forgive you for your sins. Believers, if you've been struggling with the love of God, wondering where he is or why he's not communicating or, or what is happening or whatever is going on, I, I, I want to encourage you today to get real close to the love of God. As our, our musicians come and prepare to lead our final song, let's go to the Lord in prayer.